Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true stories. I'm Karen, one of your hosts today. Hey, what's up? And I'm Carlos, an author from all the way back in season one of the podcast. And I'm really excited to be back with all of you and to host this episode entitled The Dream. And I'm Selena. And this episode is all about how three young authors make attempts at achieving their version of the American dream. But it might not always turn out the way they planned. You'll see. Our first story is by Donata Skarsevic. Donata is actually a senior at John Jay, majoring in English and minoring in art. Her literary and visual artworks focus on identity, something that she's been concerned about throughout her 23 years of living undocumented in the United States. Born in Jamaica, Donata arrived in the U.S. at the age of six and was drawn to John Jay because she wanted to be immersed in the immigrant justice process. She is an advocate, a dreamer, and firm believer that despite the political climate, the American dream will forever live on. She currently resides with her three-year-old daughter and husband, who's also a practicing artist and biggest supporter in Brooklyn, New York. Here's a contextual preface before we share Donata's piece. A story of loss, of a broken heart, and of living the undocumented experience all tied into one, Donata's fragmented story loops through time and space. Audiences should note that the narrator is foretelling and walking the listener through the death of her sister Keisha while sharing details of memories of a teenage relationship with the boy that she equates to living in America, undocumented. Thank you, Karen. Let's take a listen to Donata's piece, entitled My Father's Farm. In the dream, the sun was hot. In fact, I never felt the heat so hot. There I was walking along this dusty and deserted road when I saw a procession of people headed towards me dressed in full black. There was hairdresser Michelle, candidly, and a woman who favored my mother. Why did her face look like that? Her skin bleached out till it red, till it raw. Oh, everybody I go, I thought. Where's everybody going, I said. All these women, I thought as they passed by me. Mommy turned to me, looking straight through me. She said, you're not here. Keisha dead. She turned back around and kept walking. I joined the line, walking among them, but not with them. For the first time, I was truly alone. I looked up and began searching for the patches of blue in the bright white sky. God, tell her I'm sorry. Tell her I'm sorry. Then a voice replied, she already forgives you. I woke up and shouted, what a lie. Two weeks later, Keisha died. You two are so different, Ivy and you. But like brothers, you reign exactly the same. I was broken by you, wasted my youth on you, still living through the aftermath of you. 
I have to admit in your defense, I did make it easy. Made it easy for you to fill me up with love and lust, dreams and doubts. I was naive. I'm sorry. I believed. I wish someone would have told me, warned me to stay away from that boy. When I think about my undocumented life, the only solace I had between the pressures of working, the constant family crisis, the dreams... The dreams that were driving me mad was being laid up with that man. He was my American dream. The thing I always wanted but never truly wanted me back. The one thing that told me everything I wanted to hear, whispering how much he believed in me and let's get married this year. The child knew better. That's why my true nature gave me no rest. What am I if not a spiritual being? A spiritual being living in a physical world, being crushed by earthly desires at every turn. It was the papers. The papers. They ruled my mind, engulfed my life. I had no papers. Papers. Everyone else around me had no papers, and they were fine, or so it seemed. Not a worry in sight. Maybe I wasn't built like the rest. No, I just wanted too much. That's why you had to put me in my place, teach me to creep when I was already running, a place so preoccupied with space. You talk so white, she said. You can't talk Jamaican, him said. Think of how it would feel to be together again. The flow, the magic, the ups, the lows, the pain and tears. Isn't that what love is? Isn't that what America is all about? How absolutely crazy and inspired you made me, constantly turning me on and off, the pleasure, the screaming, the pretense, how freeing, a feeling that was never mine to begin with. You were only around for short stints of time, time. It went on for way too long. All that time we pretended, I pretended you were mine. Oh God, forgive me. His lips... My hands, his eyes, I see the evil, I feel it. Anything this good must be a sin. Lustful skin, how temporal, how unworthy. Stay focused. Okay, you gave me pleasure, but never, oh never were we ever connected. My mind wanted so bad to merge with yours, but this block, this rock stood in our way. Forgive me for believing in you, in us. Forgive me, America, I dreamt too much. I must forgive myself for my own royal fuck-up. Our kind could never be, will never be. Dark and light should never mix, shouldn't mix. I did love you, or thought I did. I never found the courage to be myself, to say the things I always wanted to say, to do the things I always wanted to do. We really were just two strangers in bed, in love with ourselves. I miss your stupid ignorance. The folly that engulfs you, or is it me? The confidence of knowing everything and nothing at the same time. How I could teach you. How you allow me to be different versions of me. I'm all these women moving between your every wants and needs, all while still trying to be free. You know what? I take back my love. My fragmented image remains. I could... Only hope you loved me or carried something similar for me in that cold, calculated heart of yours. There are these times of year when my being aches for you. Not every part of me, because I hate to hear you speak. 
Intellectually, you do nothing for me. Spiritually, you probably ruin me. But my imagination is ignited when I think of releasing on you, with you. As I write, I feel free. Why did you choose her over me? Is it her hair, her light skin? I believed in us. I love you through all your flaws, and still you don't want me. And still you don't see me, and still you don't call me, and still you lie to me. And still I pretend not to know. God, what should I do with all the stuff I have inside? Will it be wasted, continually mistreated, taken for granted, not recognized? Can you not help me? Can you not see me? Can you not hear me? Do you not feel what's going on inside me? How should I cope? How do I understand? Please explain. Where is my courage? Holy Spirit, I need your guidance. Why am I still a child raising a child? Why will you not help me? You said you will provide my every need. Am I not worthy? Speak to me plain. Release me. Release me from this, this pain, this prison. I'm not sure how, but I know it's going to happen. I know I will succeed. The problem is I can't seem to fall asleep. I can't eat. I can't move. I can't or won't go outside. There's something holding me back, something that has always been there. But now it's growing out of control. My mind is working against me. I get sick for no reason. My stomach hurts when it's time to go outside. When I see people, I feel dizzy. It's, it's the energies, the energies. It's, it's, it's all in my head. When I hear the sirens, my heart starts to pound. I'm straining to concentrate, to keep it together. The dreams are slipping away. I've tried picking up my Bible and being content with that, but I don't want to be content. I want to be happy. Yeah, you blocked him, erased his number, changed your number, ripped up his pictures, burned his cards, threw out his hats, but still he's with you, inside you, as the child. Yeah, you buried your culture. Might as well. You couldn't go back. Turn down your voice. Submerge yourself in this life, this American life. You work hard. Clean their toilets. Serve them coffee. But still, they don't want you. And still, something they have stays with you. It's the ambition. Ambition. It won't leave you. I am a warrior. I am a conqueror. An overcomer, and I got the victory. Don't talk, don't talk defeat to me. I am a child of God, and I got the victory. Then there were the microaggressions, working while undocumented. Katie, 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 turning to me, he said, hey, you, stay in your lane, he said. You're from Jamaica. Oh, my nanny was Jamaican, he said. A waitress who dreams is offensive to her customer, her co-workers, and inevitably her employer. A waitress who dreams is not wholly a waitress, but a performer. This is the greatest danger to the mind. She walks in and her long white skirt moves swiftly past me, an apparition of Coke, basil fries, two lattes, both soy, a retarded mixture of half decaf and calf. 
margarita pizza, pesto on the side. Please don't forget to add the olives. Arugula and beet salad, truffle dressing on the side. The spirit of the white skirt stays in my peripheral and I feel the tension mounting. Shit, my book. I hate conflict. The shift is slow, only two tables, but I feel the energy. Everyone feels the energy. Who will Miss Perez pick on today? Shit, my book. I turn and there she is with my book, screaming and banging a mouth of ineligible words. Her hands move swiftly, dramatic and wild. She looks beautifully cruel. Insane. I work with the mentally insane. I walk over calmly and smile, take up my book, my dreams, my thoughts, deepest desires, and put them to the side. I retreat back to the register to sip my lemonade-looking mixture. The lemons are stacked to the brim of my second, no third, sippy cup of white wine lemonade brunch spritzer. I doodle on the coffee-stained guest checks. It's only 10 a.m., 16 more hours to go. Where is my salad? I need my salad before my pizza. I don't want this pizza now, and you forgot to add the olive. She looks over at Miss Perez. I smile and head downstairs for the salad. I hate conflict. There's no place to hide. What part of my order did you not understand? I take a gulp of my red wine in uh, my Walker's coffee cup. No bun on my burger. Salad instead of potatoes. Medium. Not well done. Are you slow or something? She looks like she hates me, but I know it's not the food. It was the way her husband acted at the table. He ruined the mood. I'm in the weeds. It's the lunch rush, and I don't have time for this. Focus. I have a bunch of lawyers in the back room, a.k.a. the dungeon, waiting on me without waters or bread. I'm sorry, I said. I'll take it back to the kitchen. I take the food back to the kitchen and slam it on the counter, saying, Fix this. 4A needs a salad. No bread, no potatoes. Did you read the ticket? I have a lump in my throat. My heart is beating fast. Everyone's eyes are on me, and they all need something. Ketchup. Miss my tea. I walk past the groping stairs, the needy hands, the evil thoughts, A1 sauce, straws. Hi, my name is Abia Waitress. What can I get for you? Shame on you, she said. Shame on you, she yelled. My hands are shaking. They never look up. As the first guest orders, I hear to my right, Richard, your client is illegal. He will for sure get deported. The deportation procedures have already begun. We have nothing to negotiate. Before I know it, the tears are there. They're hot and flowing and salty and sweet. They're comforting. And still, they never look up. Focus. 3A needs their ketchup. Intersectionality at its finest, the power of I am. I am a woman. I am a black woman. I am an illegal black woman. I'm a black immigrant woman. I am Jamaican, almost American, and still belong to none. They're watching me. Who's watching you? Immigration, they're trying to deport me. Okay, go home and get some rest. Jump. If God loves you, he'll catch you. Jump off the Brooklyn Bridge. I am an artist. I am a writer. I am a prolific creator. I am the voice of the undocumented dreamer. I am the leader of the free world. Focus. 
I'm a pioneer worker in the studio of your mind. Walkers far and wide reside with the hockenberries to hear the American lies and taste the bitterness of rotten basil. Show me your values, the core of your schools, communities divided without resources, clearly misused. Does color divide or is it nationality too? Status, last name, are we all just searching for Instagram fame? I am successful. Slavery. The secret is to take away identity. I know what modern slavery is. I lived it. I witnessed it. But still, I remain grateful. Even when they say, we don't need another black girl. We already have two. Victor, you have created a monster. Stein, you just don't understand. She's a dreamer, a believer, an unapologetic believer in the goodness of humanity, in hope, in freedom. You're so beautiful like this, he said. Would you like something to eat? No, just tea. You're perfect now. Just right, he said. I look in the mirror and I don't recognize myself. My hair is blonde, my frame too tiny, my outfit colorful, creative. I don't know this girl, but I like her. He likes her. The lady in the elevator liked her. I think America might like her. Keisha in Serbian means rain. I want to go outside in the rain. Is my singing bothering you? Girl, ain't nobody thinking about you, she yelled. The day of my sister's burial, it rained. Never have my entire family come together, driven so far and not argued. Okay, we did argue. But in the car, there was some stillness. When we got to the cemetery, Arlington National Cemetery, I found it odd you would be laid to rest with all these military soldiers. Soldiers who fought for this country. But when I think about it, in your own way, you did fight in this country. Every day you fought. You fought for freedom. You fought for life. You fought for happiness in this semi-functional world. You fought as Layla. You fought for your children, your marriage, and you died in battle unexpectedly in your sleep at 33. I see you don't need me anymore, she said. I'm stressed, she said. How fitting that you'd be laid to rest here. The American flag folded neatly over your coffin. What a joke. No, seriously, is this a joke? Is this really happening? Rain drops. Don't look at Richie. He's crying. Don't cry. Be strong. All of this for nothing. And still, they don't want you. And still, they don't want to know you. Let Keisha fall on you. Let the wetness of her burdens, her pain, her cries, her fears, let it fall on you. Her heartbreak, her disappointments, her laughter, her childhood, the weight of her body, let it fall on you. Let our moat wash upon you. The multitudes of dreams deferred, her sons, the boys, those little black boys, let their lives, their futures fall on you. When I traveled to Florida, I cried the whole flight. My first flight by myself as an adult. The first flight I can remember. 
a flight I never even knew I could take. Since the age of six, I'd never been back on a plane. I stayed away from airports. I was illegal. I didn't even know I could fly. When we all got there, either by bus or plane, my mother and little sister started taking up everything. Her shoes, her jewelry, the clothes, these these things. I looked around in horror. Donna, we're going to lose all her stuff. Do you understand? I didn't understand. I took up her wallet. Inside was her green card dated 2012. Her social, it read Keisha Watson Scott. I found her journal and all the cards I sent her. And this, this is what I took. Inside her journal, it read goals for 2013. Enroll in school, check. Open my restaurant, Keisha Blessings, menu on the back. Visit my home, Jamaica. Hashtag accomplish. Here lays a life suspended around papers and legality of documents stifled at its core, unable to move, to breathe. And then she gets it, the thing. And then she is no more. Oh, death. Oh, life. This American life. Where is your sting? Back on the farm, Abba Father. The stairs were long and spiral. People were crying and burning. I kept my eyes fixed, looking up. I was nervous, but I saw them. Here my fate would be decided. Would I burn or enter into those pearly white gates? I was self-conscious. I was in line when he came in, dressed completely in white, my father. I couldn't look. I wonder if he knew me. I wonder if he really knew me. Send her back, he said to the man on his right. She has to write my father's farm. I never prayed to be legal. I couldn't bring my lips to ask him for that. I don't think I really wanted that. What would I obsess about if I actually got the papers, that document? I asked him for that boy, though. I cried and prayed, but he didn't give him to me. He understood that as you get older, the more confused one becomes. Focus. Thank you for listening to the dreaming child and not the educated woman trying to get out. The music on the TV screen captured my imagination. Whether it was laying in my pink and white canopy bed, Mommy, I need a canopy bed. Just like the little girls on TV humming, Oh, Donna, oh, Donna. You know the tune from La Bamba? Or dancing on chairs while elbow deep in dishwater, tapping my uncoordinated feet to the soundtrack of Footloose. Calling Bobby Simmons over and over, requesting Hit Me Baby One More Time or Brandy and Monica, The Boy Is Mine. Waking up, peeking into Keisha's room as she got dressed for school. The colorful baggy jeans, Tommy Helfiger button-down shirts, blinded by Biggie's juices beating through the gold curtains. It was all a dream, he said. My childhood was beautiful in many ways. The 90s was the hood per se, but we lived great. The bookshelf was full of books that my mother obsessively bought, but only I read. I danced and sang and wrote dirty stories in my journal and read them to friends on the lunch line. I dreamed. I believed. The imaginary characters from the movies on TV, Five Heartbeats, Sister Act 2, Cry Baby, the singers on MTV and BET, they were all just living out their dreams. 
their American dreams. These people were more real to me than my friends, than my own family. Coming here was the best thing that could have ever happened to me, and still, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. I'm glad it happened to me and not you. In the womb, he called me by name. That's why I came so early. Seven months to be exact. One and a half pounds, they said. No one thought we would make it. There will be trouble, he said. But don't worry, I have overcome the world. The spirit I have given you, my star, will lead you far. But be aware of the creeping vine, he said. The ornamental plant disguised to enhance all your glory will try to contaminate your blood. The seeds I have planted will not easily take root. Your tree must first be tested, then it will bear fruit. By their fruit you shall know them, so pick wise, pack light, and be ready for the fall. Through it all, never forget where you came from. Never forget where you were born. Never forget your father's farm. That was, that was so good. <laughs> it's, it's, it really does read like poetry. It does. It's, it, I feel like I'm being told this like beautiful and ominous story that just, I, I, uh, it's just, no, it, it like legit, like this is one of those stories that is meant to be read out loud. Yeah. Like yeah. it, and you did it so eloquently mm. and so beautifully. Thank you. Thank you yeah. so much for sharing that. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. So, Firstly, like we've said, your story is so clearly and distinctly different from anything we've ever had on the podcast before. Um, there are times when it feels like you're speaking to the audience as though it was a real conversation with them, like with repetition and with like explanation. And you mix it with these poetic vignettes of mm -hmm. memories that you are remembering yourself. And mm -hmm. it feels like you're just talking to like you and you're just mm -hmm. expressing it for you. And it feels like a mix of like a journal and a letter to someone else and a telephone call with the entire audience. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, it, it encompasses like everything mm -hmm. and, and watching it is just like, it's, it's, it's beautiful. So why the choice to communicate this story in this special way? Um, so the story essentially is all about the undocumented experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and I feel like to talk about the undocumented experience, it was really important for me to connect heartbreak to it um, because that's what I what I feel like living in America for so long. Wow. It's just kind of like, you know, brokenhearted for a long time. Mm. So I just pieced in, you know, my, you know, experience with heartbreak. But then it's also about loss. And, um, you know, I, my sister passed and I also pieced in not just my story but also her story she was also undocumented so mm -hmm. it had to be fragmented like that because I feel like I think in all aspects of my life you know whether I was working or whether I was in a relationship whatever I was doing whether it be in school or whatever that undocumented that that stigma of not being legal like plagued me in every area so mm. i had to find a way for the story to go through memory go through time go through experiences yeah there was a there was a moment in which you um talk about slavery actually and you talk about how uh it really is it comes down to taking away somebody's identity mm -hmm. and it's so funny that you mentioned this heartbreak can can you like 
talk about how the undocumented experience also ties into that concept of heartbreak of uh heartbreak but also slavery in a way as well as a loss of identity um so i think to you know i I came here and i have sisters who were born here Mm. and they identify a lot with being jamaican like you know they they talk better jamaican than i do Mm. um but when i came here um, I didn't know right away that I was, you know, undocumented. Um, but when I found out, I kind of like made a decision. Like, I can't go back to Jamaica. So I kind of mm. have to make up my mind and figure out how to like merge and just make this life, you know, my life, which which it was, which I was already doing. Because, you know, I went to school, you know, elementary school here. Um, but in doing that, I found that I was never like American enough. I was like the Jamaican girl mm. or the black girl or, you know, but I wasn't like, I just didn't feel like I belonged. Um, but then when, you know, I was around like Jamaicans, I didn't feel Jamaica, <laughs> Jamaican either. So I felt like my identity was just all messed up. And then at the same time, uh. I couldn't go anywhere else. I couldn't travel. I couldn't experience yeah. much else. So I felt really stuck. I felt like in shackles and, big thing about like slavery you know like you, f- you feel like you can't you know move or or breathe yeah. so i think wow i think you definitely did a great job of capturing yeah. that emotion as well it all connects yeah. like you can't there there's no way especially like speaking from my personal experience i know it's very different from yours i'm an immigrant as well um and i am also going through this thing right now with my immigration status where things are very rocky Um, and I definitely know that feeling of like, I love America. America is mine. And at the same time, America doesn't like me. And at the same Mm -hmm. time, America, like the boy that you, you, or the man that you Mm -hmm. mentioned in your story kind of likes other people better and kind of like, (laughs) (laughs) and kind of like, is almost like, oh, I believe that America, like exactly like you say in your piece it's like believing that America is for you. America right. loves you too. America will take care of you. Right. Um, and then realizing that, oh, I was a fool. Right. Like to believe yeah. that is kind of foolish in a way. I think too there's a part in it where I feel like I'm going, or not a part in it, but what really happened is I felt like I was kind of like spiraling out of control mm. and just like very much like, you know, um, like, oh my gosh, immigration is, you know, trying to get me. And, and this was this, this was all some time ago, but I couldn't imagine living in the current political t- climate and mm. and and being undocumented. I, I don't I don't know what I would do. So I don't know, you know. Even saying that, I feel for you. Like I literally can't can't imagine. I don't know what I would do if my my status wasn't okay. But with the the boy, when I was this was a teenage relationship mm. that broke my heart. It was I think the what was really magnificent <laughs> with his like playing with my heart. It wasn't that he was playing with my heart, but um, you just was like, you was, you believe this fantasy or you believe this thing. Um, and it felt real. It looked real. It sounded real. So then, you know, it has to be real. And mm-hmm. there's this thing about America. It feels real. You're around it. And, yeah. you know, but it's not, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's something about it that's just, 
Yeah. Yeah, and that that actually that that really sticks with me because you you bring up this this topic of dreams a lot. Actually, actually, your piece starts with a prophetic dream mm-hmm. that it's like you thought like and it it goes against what you just said. It was like you thought that it wasn't real. Mm-hmm. And that kind of just sets up the whole piece for like your disillusionment as well. So what do you think starting this piece off with that prophetic dream? How do you think that affected that disillusionment of the American dream as well? How does that play along? So I think even in the dream, it's like very desolate, right? I'm walking Mm -hmm. by myself in this dream. Mm -hmm. And... um. I see like these figures, these women. It, it 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 plays in because it's not a dream; it's a nightmare, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's what it is. Like, you know, we we think a lot that there's this dream, and you hear everyone talk about this American dream, but you know, it's not really a dream or just a dream. It's it's scarier than we we think it is. It's deeper. Mm-hmm. There's so many more layers to it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. This specific dream is a, it's a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> it's 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 just so it's just very well made into tying all of these things and all of this like loss where you thought there would never be a loss. Mm-hmm. So there is this boy yeah, exactly. and there is of course your sister and then there is America as an identity and never thinking those things can go away. And then realizing that sometimes the dreams that come true like work hard, pray hard and your dreams will come true. Sometimes the dreams that come true are the worst ones. And that's kind of what this is about, is the breaking of that that archetype of the tree. Right. Like, I don't, I don't, there's never, like, I, I don't think I can go a month of my life of actually having physical dreams and then one of them not being bad, you know? So it's like, mm-hmm. why do we think of these things, these, like, happenings of our mind as only good, you know? And you touch upon all of those things really, really, yeah. really beautifully. Because you mentioned you mentioned how you felt kind of um, these intense emotions around, especially like with the undocumented stuff. Mm-hmm. There was a moment in the piece where you're like waiting tables, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you set it up with like you're asking yourself, "Is this all in my head?" Uh, it, it starts with like this inner tor- uh, turmoil. It's very internal, and then. It, it leads into this external type of like, oh my God, like they, like what is going on here? So I, I think can you and and again, you you caught the the intensity of that moment so brilliantly. I just I want you to um, elaborate a little bit more about uh, what was going on during that time mm-hmm. and how do you think that relates nowadays with people who are experiencing, these you know intense emotions in this social climate um so i feel like um waitressing was a really good job for me because if not i'm like naturally you know shy reserved private kind of Mm -hmm. and what waitressing does it it forces you to you know go out talk and you Mm kind of have to like you know perform (laughs) 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 um so this what it was was that I would go waitress um, and perform. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, 
be going through like whatever real thing that was happening in my life and feel like my world was falling apart and then get up for the shift and then have to like put it all together and smile and you know make sure everything was like you know act like everything was okay when they weren't okay you know when I was feeling like so much anxiety at times I was like hyperventilating in the bathroom Mm. you know over this over this thing um these papers obsessed with these papers is like literally though obsessed with it in every aspect of my life since I was a kid um so I set it up that way because it just really I, I I think it just like happened because a lot a lot of this was like um it was very much different uh part types of writing but it just ha- it just like naturally flowed that way mm-hmm. you know um in reference to you know people who are like dealing with this stuff now like i said you know if i was and this was i can't remember what year you know i was going through all of this i was i don't know maybe 22 mm-hmm. but um i couldn't imagine if i was freaking out and when you know everything's okay i i can't imagine you know what people are going through now and and how i would be now you know <laughs> i really don't i don't even know what to say i'm just like looking at quotes right now and i'm just taking them all in and and that that there are so many really good quotes yeah and what specifically gets me is it's about so much more than 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 a boy but relating it back to something like that is just so like relatable right. and so interesting. And even people that don't know what it's like to, you know, be fearful when it seems to everyone else that they're But everyone be knows fear. how it feels to be in love, right? Mm-hmm. You know yeah. how it is to be in love yeah. or to yeah. be in love with this person or this thing that you think is, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I think too, a big part of like being in love is like when you really trust a person. You all of a sudden start giving your all, right? You, yeah. you start just being vulnerable, um, mm. and and that's where the real heartbreak, like even beyond just the heartbreak, but that's where it really gets to you. You know, when you're vulnerable and you really like give yourself, and then it's like, no, you're not enough. Mm. You yeah. know, that's what it comes to. But I think to the story, it's about all this stuff. But what I really tried to get to, the end was like, you know, it, it's also a way for me to like stay motivated um you know also about like staying like you know continue believing in myself even though all this stuff is going on you know you're hurting and you're lost and all types of stuff and your heart is breaking or broken um you have to remember you know who you are Mm -hmm. i think uh living here or going through all uh this undocumented experience you you forget it's all about like you know where do you come from you're not from here and all this stuff but it's like who are you you know yeah yeah that actually uh echoes in one of the in one of the quotes that really really stood out to me you you asked the question does color divide or does nationalism and it's like whoa yeah because it's so much like you said like this this stuff goes so much deeper than just like the color of your skin or just especially for from what you're talking about with for the undocumented experience and how that comes back to slavery and identity it's like what is this identity what does it mean to be american you know yeah. i don't know especially your 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 treatment like you felt like it was like a target on your back or you felt like you had the words immigrant 
on your on your on your forehead and you felt it and, and especially in the way that people like treat people couldn't necessarily like pe- women in the coffee shop couldn't necessarily see you as an immigrant necessarily but she could see you for the color of your skin and that made her almost feel inclined to treat you so differently and to i think she even and, and you get you get that was. a lot though when you're waitressing is yeah. it's like it's like every day that's mm-hmm. just a, a product i guess mm-hmm. the waitressing like customers and man even working managers and mm-hmm. you know i feel like you get that that's a whole thing in itself too you just i was wondering if she had any link to like the choice to include her if that was linked to also when you mentioned I didn't write it. I just wrote Becky with the good hair. But the the <laughs> what you wrote about the as I write, I feel free. What makes you love her more than me? Oh, is it her this hair? This is talking about the, the relationship. Mm-hmm. relationship. Oh, so this that's separate from uh, Richard, and that was mm-hmm. okay. So because it spanned over time, mm-hmm. a lot of what I talked to, uh, about uh, before was just like how I felt throughout the relationship, mm-hmm. but. Um, so like that the guy that I was with he was like you know we I don't know how to explain I don't want to I don't want to like say like talk too much about it like it matters anymore but yeah, no. um but anyway he ended up being with someone who was you know like mm-hmm. obviously like uh lighter skin or mm-hmm. longer hair and then mm-hmm. so then I'd wonder about and and this person is, is also black so mm-hmm. it's it's not really um racing but maybe like a colorism thing mm-hmm. it's like you know but i but i think it's not about her not about him but it's about like me so me trying to figure out what was wrong with me mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. why didn't you choose me like you know why am i not good enough america yeah. why am i not yeah, good enough to this I, you know to this guy um so i think that's that's really what that's yeah, about that's what i was that's what i was getting to is that it 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 felt then even uh, when she like the the restaurant person asked me like what's wrong mm-hmm. like what's wrong with you mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think with all this being said like what i'm really curious to know is because you know sitting here talking to you just like sitting across from you like you seem like you you have things pretty figured out <laughs> like, like and no, just being I able to I'm like <laughs> aren't we all, no, all but, over but you definitely you give off this aura of like you know you've come a long way from the emotions mm-hmm. that are linked to this so i think i think what our audience really would like to know is how'd you like dig yourself from this place like how'd you dig yourself out like how are you oh, yeah. you know able to even talk yeah. about these things you like, know what would you want listeners or readers to take away from this from your story i haven't dig myself out uh-huh. i am the only way to get through this and and any of this you know any part of this because there's so much there's so much more i feel like there's so much more to be said that needs to mm-hmm. be said but the only way is to say it because if i don't say it um it's like I'm going to drown in it, mm-hmm. you know. So saying it, writing it is one thing. But, you know, I, I'm happy that um, I even found out about this podcast and was able to be on this podcast because it's like I have another opportunity to say it. When mm-hmm. I say it out loud, it takes on another life of its own. Yeah. So Definitely. 
I can remove somehow, you know, it brings healing. So it's therapy. That's what it is. Wow. <laughs> Taking out the tumor. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So with that, we're going we're gonna to wrap up now. So thank you for telling us, not telling us, for sharing the story with us. We're like, it's, it's like so many pieces of, of, of you that are just in this. And speaking so many truths to not truths Definitely. that aren't like just true to you, but truths that are true to so many people. It speaks so many. Yeah, like, it speaks so many Thank you for giving me a place to uh, share. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Our next story is by a new author to Life Out Loud, Ranak Majabib. Ranak Majabib is a charismatic, driven, and spunky 21-year-old hailing from Williamsburg, Brooklyn. She is currently majoring in international criminal justice at John Jay College, and she is a fierce advocate against gender-based violence, such as through her work through Saki, an NYC nonprofit that advocates for awareness, resources, and legislation regarding domestic violence in South Asian communities. When she's not bogged down by her law school application work, Renak is exploring herself and the world around her through her writing. And actually, this premiered live recently at New World Stages for Dramatic Adventure Theater's Travelogue. Let's take a listen to Renak's piece entitled, The Price of Privilege. You are the woman on the seven train. The woman who just scurried into the car right before the doors closed. The woman with the waist-length silky hair, free of kinks and split ends, glossy, like black tar. You catch my eye, perhaps because you are wearing an Indo-Western-style gurta, an orna dangling off your shoulder. I guess that you are probably also South Asian, possibly Bengali. You look older than I am, and I can't help but notice that, like mine, your hands and forearms are also stained burnt orange from fresh henna paste. Probably applied this past Thursday during the festivities of Chandrath. Your henna printed hands are thick and strong, like they've already built a life full of meaning somewhere, one with purpose, pain, and strength. Their hands, like my mother's, those which have brewed hundreds, maybe thousands, of cups of coffee at the Dunkin' Donuts on 125th Street. Hands like my uncle's that chop lamb meat for $5 gyro over rice platters at the halal cart on Woodhaven Boulevard. Hands like my father's that grip and spin the steering wheels of Ubers, Lyfts, and Junos all across these boroughs day in and day out. Hands that get you where you need to go while his first name, Muhammad, often gets in the way of where he needs to go. Great! Look, he's been stopped for another random inspection by the airport officials, I think to myself, en route to Bangladesh for our first trip back since 2007. I glance back at you. Your almond-shaped dark brown eyes are intensely lined with gajal. You are wearing a small hoop nose ring on your left nostril, and your eyes quickly dart back and forth in search of the closest subway map. Your eyebrows furrow ever so slightly, and I recognize that look. It's a look of confusion. 
a look I've seen many times before on both my mom's and dad's faces. My parents have had that same look on their faces when they first got here. Here, where they found the chaos of the vast, foreign, far-reaching underground mass transit system, where the single fare was a fixed $2. No chance of haggling with the skinny men back home in Bangladesh who changed their transit prices from moment to moment, customer to customer. Men made up of pure skin, bone, and muscle, who'd use raw human power to pedal rickshaws, the kind with colorful patterns all over the hood. You could usually get a ride starting from 20 to 30 taka, about the equivalent to 25 cents in U.S. dollars. Here, there were no rickshaws. My father took his puzzled look to the streets driving yellow taxicabs for years and years. As he got to know the various bridges and tunnels of the concrete jungle that is New York City, he lost that puzzled look and gained one of exhaustion instead. To make ends meet, he began driving for multiple ride-hailing services too, and now he knows New York City like the back of his hand. Name any cross street in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens. Bet he can give you detailed instructions without even once looking at a GPS. But you? You clearly do not know New York City like the back of your henna-stained hand. That's an obvious. And I wonder if you need help. But I don't ask you. You seem like you got it. I wonder what you're doing here. If you're just visiting or if you're an immigrant, like my parents were when they traveled 16 hours and 45 minutes on the Bangladesh Biman with five-year-old me and my two-month-old brother Mubasar trying so hard to give us all a better life. That was one of the hardest things, actually. Watching them try so hard. Listening to their fragmented English. Training their tongues to mimic an American accent they'd never totally get. Knowing how hard they worked, how little they made. Faced with so much discrimination, frustration, and confusion. The times my mom would take her hijab off in public in the years following 9-11, how they struggled to survive. For the first five years, the four of us lived in one small room together in Woodside, Queens. We shared a small two-bedroom apartment with another family of four, along with some mice, cockroaches, and an infestation of bedbugs that would make a Thanksgiving feast out of my legs each night. It got so bad that my mom would submerge our clothes and sheets into boiling water on the stove. We would use bug bombs and even had to evacuate the apartment. Why do we have to live like this? I'd complained at seven years old after seeing the houses and apartments that some of my friends lived in. Homes where the paint wasn't peeling. Homes with no second-hand furniture. Homes with multiple beds so their dads didn't have to sleep on a blanket across the floor. Some days, the other girls would bring toys from home and play with them during recess. I watched them, quietly, and later threw tantrums. Why did my mom buy me ugly dolls? The kind with the yarn for hair. The kind everyone knew came from the local 99 cents and up store. When I specifically asked her for one of the pretty Barbie dolls. The one with the silky human-like locks. Why? 
I'd go on to tantrum about other things too. Once I'd asked for a pair of Heelys, the kind that all the other kids at school owned, but my parents only bought me a cheap pair of shoes from Payless. You never buy me anything I want! I told my mom they were garbage and demanded she take them back because I wouldn't wear them. You are still studying the map, and I wonder what city you're from. Maybe Borishal? Kumila, Moimunching, Rangpur, or Narangonj, like us. My first time back to Bangladesh, back to Narangonj in early 2016, was when I learned that my dolls with the yarn hair and even the bugs were the price of privilege. At every busy intersection, men, women, and small children tap against the car's windows, desperately seeking money. Many of them are disabled, missing a limb, or even two. They wobble down the congested street, begging in between the rickshaws. And then I realize that somehow I am the only one looking at them. All the other passengers look in different directions when the beggars pass, ignoring them. How can you ignore this, I think? I roll my window down a tiny bit, just enough for me to give a small girl with only one arm a hundred taka note. She is 12 or 13, but her eyes look older. They hold hard eye contact with mine as she takes the bill from my hand. Suddenly, my mom scolds me. Rifat, you can't give money to everyone who asks. We aren't rich. We are poor ourselves. We can't afford to help the whole entire world. But Ammu, as I go to argue that a hundred taka is only a dollar twenty-two, she cuts me off and says, There are just too many people who need help. Also, the girl won't be able to keep the money you gave her anyways. Someone will take it from her. Someone. I know she means the gang leaders who profit off of maimed child beggars. And my heart? feels like it's sinking, like the last grains of sand falling to the bottom of an hourglass as I realize what I've supported with my dollar twenty-two. I was just trying to. <sighs> Later in the week, I find myself in a rental car on my way from Narangonj to visit my dad's sister and our family in Dawatgandi. Our driver parks the car and tells us that the roads up ahead are narrow and in poor condition. We have to walk the rest of the way. As I open the car door, the humidity immediately pounces. I wish I could take another shower. Earlier, my shower was cut short when the water ran out while I was washing my hair. I had stood there, naked, awkwardly waiting for it to come back while the shampoo stung my eyes. This never happens in New York. I also wish I hadn't finished my only bottle of water. I can't just buy another bottle of water on the roadside here. Not unless I want diarrhea again. As we walk the dirt road to my aunt's, my black flats are quickly coated in a thick layer of dust. Funny that this is my parents' idea of a vacation. To me, vacation definitely does not mean being dragged off to the motherland. A land I never knew as a mother. A land where I can hardly relate to anything. A land where I can't travel without a male escort. 
where I have to cover entirely because of fear for my own safety. No, to me, a vacation sounds more like backpacking through Europe. France, Spain, oh, maybe Italy. I dream about being able to visit a place like Italy. <sighs> My off repellent and long sleeve salarkamis protect me very little from the mosquitoes, and I've just about had it when I notice a small girl. Small and skinny, about five, wearing a worn down frock dress. She's staring at me all alone, and she's barefoot her feet covered in a thick layer of mud and silt. She'd never tantrum over palest shoes. A rip winds its way down my guts. Domarnamki, I ask, but instead of telling me her name, she stares for a few seconds and then runs towards a pile of bricks and bamboo sticks. I follow and find another girl sitting on a pile of bricks. She is also barefoot. She wears a pink, plain salar kameez and holds a hammer in her hand. She strikes the bricks repeatedly, breaking the parts into smaller and smaller pieces. She is at most 12 years old, and I know instantly that she is not playing. This is her job. The pile of bricks she is breaking down is used for concrete filler here and as a base for the roads. She hammers away, managing not to hit her fingers and bare toes until she sees me watching her and looks up. Amar nam ronak, I stammer, feeling the need to introduce myself so I don't scare her away. I'm visiting my aunt. She lives down the road, I tell her in Bangla. Then, an older woman in the nearby vicinity walks towards our direction. She hesitates and stares. My aunt quickly apologizes on my behalf, explains that I'm just curious, tells the woman that I'm from Bangladesh too, but that I live in America now. The older woman nods, smiles, and proudly says, these are her daughters. She has five daughters. She looks at the camera hanging around my neck and says that I'm welcome to take pictures if I want. I nod. As I proceed to turn on my camera, she says, Thank you for talking to us like we are human beings. They look straight into my camera and pose. I take pictures like I'm a tourist. I guess I am a tourist in this place. A tourist with a camera. But you know what? I am also a daughter of this place, even if it doesn't always seem like it. <sighs> As I watch you, still studying that subway map, and still wondering where you're from, I'm sure now that you're a tourist. And then, I think of my most recent trip, the study abroad trip to Italy. Hey, I finally made it! That my parents helped me pay for where I searched street names on Google Maps, where I took taxis and used my smartphone, where I ate out, where I took class, the only woman of color of my background on this trip, and where I traveled alone, as a woman, without fear for my own safety, like you are now, like we both are now. 
on this subway in this city where I didn't have to work as a child, where I had the things I needed, where I got to learn and grow and be a kid, where my parents took a risk on, a place where, sure, we never seem to have enough, but where we are most definitely privileged. Mm. <laughs> this story is so beautiful. I'm so happy that you're able to share it with us on the podcast. Yeah, seriously. Uh, I particularly like the fact that it kind of like really takes place in just like, it feels like a matter of like a few minutes. Like mm -hmm. it's it's like just your thought process, you know. So I I I thought that that was very clever the way that you set that up. Mm -hmm. So thank you for your kind comment. <laughs> yeah. What's interesting to me is how you use the woman on the subway kind of throughout the whole thing, and you braid multiple stories and settings. You have multiple episodes during your trip to Bangladesh, your parents' immigration scenario, their struggles and work histories, multiple episodes of your life growing up in Queens as an immigrant, and then you give us a quick overview of your study abroad trip to Italy. But throughout it all, the one constant is the subway narrative. And the woman you're studying on the train becomes a type of anchoring device, which is something or someone that helps you smash all of these stories, which are so many of the stories that make you, you, into one piece. So can you tell us a little bit how that came to be? Like, why did you decide to weave her into your narrative? Well... It started off with a class where <laughs> <laughs> my professor asked us to write about an individual on the train. And I happened to be on the train that day and I saw someone of my ethnic background. And it just got me to start thinking about the, the experiences that immigrants have in New York City and my own experiences in New York City. It made me start thinking about like everything my parents have been through and why they've been through what they've been through. They literally left their country and moved halfway across the world. Mm -hmm. And that's just so meaningful. Like there's a, a reason that they do things like that. So I just started like thinking about my own life and what the concept of privilege means to me. And that's kind of how like I started reflecting on my own experiences in relation to people across the globe. Wait, so did you actually even get a chance to like talk to this person or interact with this person? It was just somebody that you were observing and just completely like like just brought you back. Yeah, it was just someone I was observing, someone mm. who was just lost in looking at a subway map. Okay. That's interesting. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, there have been like a lot of instances where I was lost in Italy and I actually mm. missed a train to Venice. And that was like super duper sad. Like, thankfully, someone helped me, but like she didn't really seem like she needed help. She was just mm. looking. So yeah. okay. that's, that's what made me think about my experiences in Italy. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. So I think that uh, one of the questions that I have really is you know, after writing this piece and, you know, kind of reflecting on all those experiences, like she said, those experiences that really make you, you, like, what is the most important takeaway from you after, you know, putting this all on paper? Well, this 
piece really made me appreciate the little things and it made me notice how much people just take things for granted like here we have access to clean water we have access mm -hmm. to sanitation we we have the privilege of going to school in other countries the literacy rates are so uh, so low like they don't have a chance and we've been giving we've been given that chance and really lucky to be living the lives that we have so yeah. Yeah. we have access to like nutrition healthcare, so many things that is just unheard of in other countries yeah i definitely felt like that um what you're saying i definitely feel like that shines through when you were talking about how uh you you don't want to like buy the water um or else, unless you want to get diary like i thought that personally i thought that was pretty funny but yeah. then at the same time it's like wait no like wait no that's actually like a real thing so mm -hmm. i don't know i think that there was a lot of those moments in yeah. your piece where it was like whoa like yeah, yeah. i myself i felt myself like taking taking that stuff for granted because here in new york city like you know we have like the cleanest water <laughs> So just even that, I was mm -hmm. like, oh, man, that's like, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, exactly. You never even think about those mm -hmm. things. Yeah, we never even think about the fact that we just have electricity, mm -hmm. like, abundantly everywhere. There are places where the power is, like, going out every mm -hmm. couple of hours. There's places where you don't even have toilets. So, like, when I was first in Bangladesh, there was it was kind of a shock to me in going mm. to some villages because I just took those things for granted. And I was really lucky to have lived the life I did live. And mm. I realized that I was just complaining when I didn't have the material things. That, yeah. Like, a doll isn't really important. Like, having shoes that are branded, that's not really important. There are people walking around with no shoes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was really interesting to see. It made me realize in your piece, like reading about the little girl you saw who didn't have shoes and you even said mm -hmm. like she wouldn't complain about the Payless shoes and like they didn't even have shoes. And then when their mother had said, oh, thank you for talking to us like human beings, uh, like that, that was moment a... was just like, yeah. wow, like what we were saying, how you take so much for granted, like that's something people don't even think about here is this you get that basic respect and then to go somewhere else and be like wow this is something they don't have it's kind of yeah i was trying to convey the socioeconomic classes there where in countries like bangladesh there's just this division of the extreme extreme poor and then the wealthy and mm -hmm. a lot of the times it's like the extreme poor are going about and going and doing their daily routine but they're just disregarded like they're just thrown away like mm -hmm. a tissue like yeah. their lives aren't valued and that just made me really really sad yeah with that being said like i think that that's that in and of itself like really shines through in your piece and i think one like one thing that i'm really curious about you know having all of these images like kind of you could tell that in your story like this stuff really had an impact on you you know so i think that what I really want to ask is, you know, being there and, and walking through these streets and, and interacting with these people, what what do you think are some of the things that need to change? I was actually thinking about this a couple of days ago, and I decided to, like, look up organizations that help yeah. uh, um, kind of deal with the 
problem of poverty and child ch- child poverty. So I found this organization. It's called Save the Children, and I decided to sponsor a seven year old girl. Her name is Mumita. Oh, um, so sweet. <laughs> we applaud you. Yes. Yeah, and it's just like I thought. I I just thought about my own life here, and yeah, I might complain because I work a minimum wage job, but. I still get the things that I need. I get a meal. I get a roof over my head. Mm-hmm. I get doctor visits. I get so many things that they'll. Some people will never ever have. So I just felt like it makes a difference if you can contribute thirty dollars a month. Like that's literally one dollar a, a day, yeah. and it adds up to three hundred sixty dollars at yeah. the end of the year, yeah. which might not seem like much to us because it's really not. But over there, the currency exchange rate, like it, it's it's something. That's really great that you're doing that. Like I wouldn't even have thought about that. I think it's something really beautiful that came out of this story, and that's why I'm so glad that you're sharing it with us so that <laughs> other people could be informed about these experiences. And uh, maybe we need to get that information in the comments somewhere so yes. other people can help out too. But definitely, thank definitely. you so much for being here. It's such a joy having you. Yeah. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Our last piece of the night is by another new author to Life Out Loud, AP. AP is a 20-year-old lifelong native of Corona, Queens. He spent his life engulfed by the many rich cultures of Latin America and developed a love for baseball at an early age. An English major and criminology minor, he chose his field of study in hopes that he can extend his career beyond his intended path of law enforcement. He gained an interest in writing after publishing a baseball article on Bleacher Report at 11 years old. Since then, he's become an addict to the sports journalism. You can find him reading up on the latest news around the MLB, editing short films, or photographing the world. Let's take a listen to AP's piece entitled, No Looking Back. November 2013. Holy shit, I shout. It's finally here. I try to read the date through the jagged lines that crack my phone screen. November 9th. It's my first day on the job. It's my first day ever working at all, actually, and I couldn't be more excited. After months of parading through seemingly endless strings of stores, shamelessly interrupting cashiers in the middle of their transactions to ask if they were hiring, yes, I know you're ringing somebody up. No, I don't think I can wait in the line extending to the frozen food section. I finally landed every 16-year-old athlete's dream job, a sales associate at Modell Sporting Goods. No more having to eat one meal a day. No longer shall I have to watch my baseball teammates at John Bound High School devour bacon, egg, and cheese heroes while I stretch out a single bag of nacho cheese Doritos. It's not that I mind being the poorest kid on the team. I just wish I could have the same luxury. I mean, these guys spend thousands of dollars to travel across the country, stay in fancy hotels, and interview with actual journalists after the games. All because they're hitting a ball. I've never played outside of New York, or Queens for that matter since my parents could barely afford to pay the $10 umpire fee after every game. But no more. With my new job at Models, everything is going to change. From now on, only sautéed shrimp coated with lobster sauce for this guy, and maybe even a big, smoky, grilled steak cooked well done and blanketed with a savory chimichurri sauce, complemented with sticky white rice, of course. The kind of rice that's used in sushi, whatever that tastes like. Maybe I'll buy a new baseball mitt. Or maybe I'll go to that tournament in Myrtle Beach with my teammates next summer. Hell, 
Maybe I can finally go on dates. I've been meaning to ask Anna out, and I haven't been to the movie since I watched Toy Story 3. Why shouldn't I spend $20 on a large popcorn? I should probably buy a new jacket too. After all, I haven't had a new one since the start of 7th grade. My mom made sure to buy me one twice my size so it'll last for an eternity. Money's been tight since she's been laid off from the salon, and my dad hasn't worked since he retired from the St. Vincent's Hospital. Sometime around the third year I wore that jacket, I realized that a new one wasn't in my foreseeable future. Here I am though, still rocking the same old North Face. It's working, mom. It's going all according to plan. Even after I faced weeks of humiliation for resembling a four foot seven Sherlock Holmes, I knew not to bother you for a new one. Fuck off, I'd shout to my pubescent classmates, their patchy whiskers just barely crossing their upper lips. My mom doesn't like spending, that's all. And pick up a fucking razor. But that's all over now. Just last week, I landed the only job I'm qualified for. And today, my journey to adulthood begins. At Models, the hub for every self-proclaimed student athlete. The mecca of all sporting goods retailers. A paradise for dumb jocks like me who'd rather catch ground balls than straight A's. Gotta go to Moe's, I mutter, smiling at my reflection in the mirror as I throw on my red polyester shirt. My dad, briefly turning his attention away from the Red Sox game, smiles too. His little man is all grown up. I tuck my shirt in my khaki cargo pants and throw on my four-year-old North Face jacket. It's time to head to work. March 2014. It's nearing four months since I started as a seasonal employee. Spring is approaching, but the air is still carrying leftovers from the winter. The store is dead as usual. What's new? The modicum of customers has haunted this place since its grand opening. I guess that's what happens when you're located in an industrial neighborhood of gritty Long Island City, where the clouds are always grayer, the rats are always bigger, and the smog emanating from the millions of trucks will land you in the nearest hospital. Think of the stake, Adrian. My department manager, Gary, seems to really like me before he quit. He did, after all, recommend keeping me as a regular employee. Who knew mindlessly walking around a dead store, doing nothing but perfecting the art of folding a shirt and playing with the weights in the footwear stockroom could pay off? I still can't believe Gary quit. I know he was mad about not getting that raise he wanted, but it can't get that bad in here, can it? My register is being counted out by my manager, Roshanda, when she notices I've come up $11 short. How could I mess up on basic math? My coworkers, all long-tenured employees, stared at my register, perplexed that such carelessness, such obscenity, such monstrosity has occurred on register number two. The dumb jock in me returns, and the redness in my face rises like a mercury bulb in a thermometer. Sorry, I say to Roshanda. I scratch the back of my head, forcing an awkward laugh to lighten the mood, but her piercing eyes lock onto mine, seething with rage. She is in no mood. I guess I'm just out of it today. Coffee had a little less sugar this morning, I awkwardly joke. You understand, right, Ro? I lightly brush her shoulder with a soft punch. In return, she gives me the most grotesque stare I've ever laid my eyes upon. I gaze into her wedge-shaped eyes when suddenly, as if a tranquilizer struck me from behind, my body freezes. First my legs, then my waist. My fidgety fingers that are tapping on the counter come to a halt. The paralysis slowly creeps up my torso. I'm defenseless as the others watch. He's fucked whispered one employee from behind me. He's so fucked. Another employee agrees. Maybe she had a little less sugar in her coffee today. Do not let it happen again, she says with a militant tone, or I'm writing you up. Gotcha. The word barely escapes my mouth. Think of the new baseball mate, Adrian. August 2014. A customer yelled at me today, 
I think that's the third time this month, but it feels like the 50th. This time it was from a crabby old man, the best kind, wearing large glasses and a suit that was way too big for him. He sported a thick goatee, probably to make up for his balding. His shouting was louder than your average hothead. I never knew anybody could get so angry after repeating what I thought was told unclearly. I mean, I knew what he said it was unclear, but the customer is always right, right? Lugs? The old man said to me, vaguely, almost as if he was asking a question. Yes, those are lug boots, I replied with uncertainty. I know those are lug boots. I want to see them, size nine. Puzzled at first, I stared him down, hoping I could intimidate him right back. But he stood still as a soldier, unbothered. It didn't work. Why don't you choke on a di- I paused my thoughts, holding in every bit of rage that this crabby old man ignited within me. Of course, sir. Let me get that for you real quick. Think of the movie dates, Adrian. October 2014. The store hired a new group of guys last month. They're your average everyday co-workers, the come-and-go kind, but a certain three seem different, like strangely different. They go by the names of Willie, Ismail, and Milo. We're all nearly the same age, but for some odd reason, it feels like we're years apart. They're quiet and always talking amongst themselves. Willie was the first to be hired from the batch of new employees. He's from Queensbridge. So is Ismail, his best friend. They're not always quiet, though. Queensbridge is known to breed some of the loudest, grittiest guys. Actually, the only time Willie shows his true Queensbridge grit is when a cute girl walks in the store. Suddenly, he's the loudest motherfucker in the room. Like an animorph, he can transform into a sperm whale. No pun intended. 10,000 hertz of sheer braggadocio. Milo, an awkwardly tall, wealthy Greek from Astoria, isn't the least bit frightening despite his 6'4", 200-pound frame. He seems more fit for a career in the WWE than a footwear associate at Models. His eye-grabbing Adidas ex-Jeremy Scott Goldbear sneakers are the last shoes you'd expect a man of his stature to be wearing. Google them. I dare you not to laugh. I'm only working here because my dad cut my allowances, he says, all the damn time. Ismail is, well, just Ismail. He's the most cryptic of the three, so there isn't much to say about him other than he's eerie as hell. I mean, the kid does not talk. Ever. You could pry his mouth open, press a mouth prop against the corners of his lips, and force him to yell, but his vocal cords will remain mute. His whole persona is an enigma. Until one day, around the third or fourth day of his employment, when he came across his first not-so-friendly customer. The customer was in no mood to be ignored that day, demanding the assistance of every worker in the store. Unfortunately for him, Ismail was in no mood either. A customer targeted Ismail, who purposely ignored his cry for help. He called him again, but Ismail was oblivious to the sound of his voice. Hello? Can you hear me? Are you fucking deaf, kid? Yelled the customer again. Ismail turned around, baffled that somebody had insulted him in public. The kid from Queensbridge wasn't going to let that slide. Say that to me again, said Ismail. It was the first time many of us heard his voice. Are you fucking deaf? said the customer slowly, mocking him as if he was a child. Ismail asked him to repeat it one last time. Are you fucking that? Before he could finish, Ismail ran towards him in full speed, fists clenched and all. He retracted his tattooed arm when Willie stopped in between the two. His Dahmer-like eyes roared with intensity. Had it not been for Willie, he was surely going to kill this guy. I've never seen anyone so angry. You can't get fired, bro. You know this. 
Willie said to Ismail as he tried to calm every jittering nerve in his body. Who on earth am I working with? Just think of the stake. Think of the stake, Adrian. December 2014. My paycheck last week was just barely over $100. Again. I worked 20 hours last week. I can't get my shrimp and steak like this. I think to myself. Most of it was already devoured by my phone bill, and the rest just went towards my Metro card. Thanks again, MTA. Still waiting for my tax dollars to fix this never-ending train traffic. I walk into the store for a closing shift. Late again and aching with every step I take on this wooden floor. I wonder who's going to yell at me today. Will it be the scammer from the Woodside Projects whose green Chase credit card is surprisingly declined for the fifth time? Yes, you read it right. It was green. Or will it be the single mother of two who furiously demands assistance while her kids are decimating the stores to shreds? Or how about Rashonda, who loves coming into work just as much as I do? Will she take her anger out on everyone today, or just me? It's almost closing time when the three new hires simultaneously walk in the employee lounge during my break. I break away from my cracked phone screen and level my eyes with theirs. Their faces are painted still and begin to look outside the room suspiciously. Am I going to get my ass kicked? The three inch closer. Milo blocks the door behind them. His body engulfs the entrance. Yeah, I'm going to get my ass kicked. Ismail, whose voice is still an anomaly to me, takes a deep breath. Listen, don't tell nobody. We're about to do some wild shit tonight, bro. Me, Willie, Milo. I don't know if you're down. We're booking mad shit tonight. Deadass. Let me know if you're with the shits. With the what? But if you want something, you're going to have to meet us in the car after work. Ismail's New York accent is heavy. It's an accent that is all too familiar. A hundred years from now, when historians study early 21st century New York City dialect, they'll be baffled by how we were able to communicate the way we did. I try to process what he said. Did he just ask me if I wanted to rob the store? Is that what he said? I know booking is slang for stealing, so I'm sure that's what he meant. But why me? Me? I haven't stolen anything since I was six. When my best friend's parents caught me limping out of their house with his Game Boy cartridge hidden in my sock. I didn't mean to stab him in the back like that. I just thought he had more than enough games is all. Nonetheless, the phone call to the police had me wanting never to touch anyone else's property again. It's an hour until closing time. I still try to process what was just offered, completely ignoring any work. Me? A thief? I can't. I mean, I could. But I shouldn't. Right? Right? I try to reflect on the good memories I had here, but there are few to convince me from not joining this amateur group of bandits. I mean, there was this one time a customer complimenting my hair. That was fun, I guess. <sighs> 30 minutes until closing. Ismail, Willie, and Milo remove the alarms from a mountain of Nike, Adidas, and Under Armour merchandise. They craftily bring the clothing to the break room, hidden from the cameras that watch our every move, and stuff the clothing in the garbage bag. <sighs> 20 minutes until closing. They toss the garbage in the dumpster behind the store. The clothing hidden in the bag that's camouflaged in the bin awaits its new owners. There was this other time I found $5 on the floor once. I keep trying to convince myself. There must be one good moment I had here. <sighs> 10 minutes until closing. Milo, Ismo, Willie, and I are waiting in the vestibule. Roshanda turns off the store lights and walks towards the exit. She opens the door. Now, the negative memories in my head are playing like a film. The better memories? They're moved to the behind-the-scenes segment. Fuck it, I think to myself as the four of us shelter into Willie's car. A beat-up green Dodge he calls the pussy magnet. Creativity wasn't his strongest trait. And wait until Roshanda fully leaves the spacious parking lot. 
Willie puts the car in drive as soon as she's disappeared, but not before scouting the entire parking lot of the plaza. It's vacant with no sign of life anywhere. No sign of plaza security either. Everyone's face is relentlessly grinning from mine. Have these guys done this before? Not one sign of fear is evident in their bodies. Ismail turns to me from the passenger seat, scouting me like a sergeant would for private. Alright, this is what's going on. You're gonna drive to the back and grab this shit. Simple as that. You're gonna have you do it though. Too many cops drive around here, so you gotta do it fast. What? When did I agree to be the bait? You'll be fine, says Milo. We've never been caught. They have done this before. The obscure private conversations, Ismail's strangely quiet but violent behavior, everything started to make sense. Before I could even answer, the car takes off, whipping my head and bouncing off the headrest. I look around the parking lot, double checking the lack of security. The car makes its way around the back end of the plaza in just 20 quick seconds, scarring the pavement with skin marks. The trip lasts only 20 seconds, but it feels perpetual. In these 20 seconds, the world snares in slow motion. Everything becomes vivid. Employees at the Toys R Us next door look tired, overworked. One employee, who dons his blue shirt with humility, is stocking one plush toy minion after another. Would he snap one day and decide to rob his store too? Would he find himself pressured by a silent maniac, a womanizer, and an arrogant rich kid? Would his excuse for doing it be because he wanted to stick it to the man? The thoughts that linger in my head during these 20 seconds are petrifying. At this point, I want the plaza security to show up. But if the desensitizing sound of the car's engine can't even alert him, what can? Alright, says Ismail. He tosses me a black Nike ski mask and an orange box cutter. Didn't this mask go missing two weeks ago? Go! Hurry! I stare deeply at the faded black ski mask. The Nike logo on the top left is chipped and it smells of sweat and anger. One can only imagine the history that this mask and Ismail share. I'm not a thief, I think to myself. I should be in bed right now, blogging to my five viewers about the latest news in baseball, or reading a cookbook on how to saute shrimp, not committing petty larceny. Ismail stares at me with his malicious brown eyes. He is growing impatient, I can tell. Milo nudges me closer to the door, which forces me to raise the lock handle. Bro, you're making it hot. Hurry! Willie yells at me through the reflection of his rearview mirror. I open the door, just as Milo shoves me out of the car. I pick up the falling ski mask, now stained with the soil from the ground, and reluctantly slide it down my head. The dumpster is in clear sight. Astonishingly enough, the cool white luminescent light from the building's lamppost is shining above it like it's some sort of treasure. This is it. I run towards the bin. Emotions are swirling inside of me, and everything in my surroundings are completely ignored. There's no looking back. I rip through the two bags like a caveman ripping through the meat of his prey. Pieces of shredded plastic are floating in the air. Piles of half-empty coffee cups spill into my hands, and the smell of leftover Chinese food is hiking up my nose. Found him! I say before hearing a collective, shh, from the guys. Why did I invite this kid again? I hear Ismail saying from the inside of the car. I hug the bag like a running back and jet towards the car, slightly out of breath. It's over. It's fucking over. The guys are congratulating me, patting my back and calling me their N-word. Before I know it, we're racing through the fog streets as if we're trying to lose the non-existent cops and headed to the nearest train station. I look at the merchandise that was thrown at me unexpectedly. There's more where that came from, said a smirking Milo, digging his large white hands into a mound of clothing while I put mine into my backpack. I'm dropped off in front of the 46th Street train station when a paranoia sets in. It's as if manacles are restraining my dome, creating the worst headache I've ever stumbled upon. Is this really what I wanted? I head downstairs to catch the approaching forest sales bound R train.
The new set of clothes in my bag begins to patronize me, judging my every step down these urine-stained stairs. The guilt is smothered all around me. I'm turning into a ticking time bomb, waiting to tell somebody what I just did. I can't do this. And just as I begin to run back up the flight of stairs, unzipping my bag filled with the scornful hoodies and t-shirts, the sound of Woolly's car, glistening with its green coat and thunderous exhaust, speeds off emphatically. This isn't how you get that steak, Adrian. Oh no! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yo, well, that was a great story. And I think you did an amazing job of illustrating how, you know, for the most part, you didn't really feel like you fit in anywhere, you know, with yeah. the jocks at your school, uh, the guys at Models, even just working at Models in general, mm. that entire experience. Um, well, what I'm interested to know actually is after you stole the merchandise, yeah, like, and it, it's something know. that, yeah, it was like something that's like clearly out of your character, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, like what happened next? Like besides that, that daunting realization that this is not how you're going to get that steak. Like, like in that moment, what would you say you like really learned about yourself and, and, and how did you move forward? Well, I quit afterwards. Oh, after that happened, so like, oh. <laughs> that was like the first thing that I did. Morals was like, out of ten. Wow. <laughs> wow. But um, I grew a lot from that moment. Like I, yeah, you know, it was a very you know traumatizing experience. It was the first time I actually did something like criminalize. You know, really, really, uh, what's the word? Criminalizing. Yeah, like incriminating. Yeah, incriminating. Yeah, incriminating. incriminating. There we go. Yeah. Mad illegal. Yeah. There's another word for it. Wow, that's interesting, though. Yeah. Good for you, though. I mean, obviously, like, shame on you, but. <laughs> and that that last line is just like so, it says so much. It's just mm -hmm. like, this is not how you're going to get that steak, Adrian. Like, it's it's just like, you kind of, your, your conscience really hit you at that yeah. point mm -hmm. and it, it's so weighted because you bring back that mm -hmm. <clears throat> that same motif of of this steak mm -hmm. of <laughs> of of yeah the steak represents so much and the movie dates represent so much mm -hmm. and and the something other than that old four-year-old north face jacket it represents yeah it represents so much because so talk can you talk about what that represented to you exactly the steak <laughs> all of these things all of these things that you you know allude to well um the steak the jacket it all represented really just me one to to fit in with everybody you know i i was mm. dirt poor you know i finally landed a job in models and i just uh i guess the jacket really symbolized like a sort of like wealth for me because uh i had a four-year-old jacket like that's that's crazy you know you know i had this in seventh grade mm -hmm. and it was just it was large it was a black one and um just getting the job in general once i got that job really i was just like i was like fuck yeah i'm sorry i fucking cursed no good you could like, weaker like, fuck yeah you know I, I got a job i can you know do stuff but as soon as i got the job i'd realize you know as soon as i realized how shitty it really was you know yeah. it, it just yeah i knew i wasn't gonna get that steak you know <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, I have another question actually because uh and it's going back to like that, you know, you didn't feel like you really fit in. Um, you know, you had the guys 
at school that you were on a team with, you know, but, you know, that you felt like because of your financial, you know, incapability, you know, or your financial kind of limitations, you couldn't be performing at the level that they were performing. Mm -hmm. But then you had the guys who were at uh, kind of like your level in terms of finances at your job, but we're doing this, you know, because of that financial limitation. What what would you say, like, that kind of, um, those two extremes, like, what would you say that did for, like, your sense of identity, you know, trying to, you know, make it, you know? Well, the baseball team, the, the baseball team is really important to the story because I really, that was, like, the image that I wanted to be. I wanted to be just like them. They were, you know, they were rich. They're from Queens Village. They're from College Point. And, uh, when I got to Models and I met these other guys, they had like kind of like the same goal as me. They wanted to get away from all that, but they just did it a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess at, at that at that moment, I wanted to you know do the same, but obviously that ended up backfiring. You know? mm-hmm. There's a part in your piece that I really like, and um, it's when you break the fourth wall a little bit by talking to us. Um, and you say his attention grabbing Adidas X Jeremy Scott cold. Golden Bear sneakers <laughs> <laughs> proved just how frivolous and childlike of a person he really is. And then you wrote, Google them. I dare you not to laugh. And I did Google them. And I was dying. <laughs> because they reminded me of like my eight-year-old nephew's yeah. like, slippers. They're so huge. It really gave me the picture. But I want to know, like, what? why did you decide to put that? Like, Breaking the fourth wall? Yeah, like... Mm-hmm. Well, I was like, I was inspired by this book I read. It's called The Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde. I don't know if you guys read that. Mm-hmm. But he, like, the author, he breaks the, the fourth wall a lot of times. And I just wanted to add that element to the story. It makes it, it makes it so, like, it, it makes it so, like, it's this cool mix of, like, you are telling us, like, as listener, you are treating us like a listener, but also treating us like a friend. It's like, Google mm-hmm. that shit. That was yeah. that was nah, those yeah, are definitely. so dumb. And I told him last night, I was like, Oh, and I know exactly the ones that you're talking about. So it's like relatable too, because it's like that it's so frivolous. Anything Jeremy Scott is so frivolous. <laughs> so like the inclusion of that, it's like it's this cool juxtaposition because these people kind of like spend their money or take yeah. these things that are like this, and you kind of want something so much different. It was actually it's interesting interesting that you brought that up because um, like during that time a lot of them only worked just to to spend money on stuff like that mm-hmm. and you know I, I came in to work for you know a new jacket a movie dates or whatever pay my phone bill so you know it was like a it was like a different you know uh imbalance i guess that's the word yeah, yeah and, and you said how you wanted to like treat yourself but also like somebody else because mm-hmm. yeah. like no one deserves oh, yeah. to feel how i did like well, i just felt for you <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I felt like there was a lot of moments of authenticity and you like your personality really shined through, especially with like um the inclusion of the italics. I mean, I know people who are listening to this won't be able to see it, but uh, you know, th- this is what we're talking about with the with the steak and, you know, that jacket and and other things. So I thought I thought that that was that was really well done, especially how you uh ended each section with one of those yeah. kind of mm-hmm. i thought that was really really well done mm-hmm. thank you yeah so yeah before you were talking about how like you were inspired by a book did you have any other inspirations i don't even know what that is any other inspirations <laughs> yeah 
library. He you know, you know the answer. Yeah. I honestly <laughs> forgot. <laughs> I forgot. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm uh, party favors. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, party favors. Inspired. inspired by Steven's party favors. Um, it's on season two, episode three of the podcast, and it's party favors by Stephen Delacruz. So that's I just I just wanted to mention that because I thought that was cool that you were inspired by that. So what parts of that? It's it's it is like a similar story, but you make it so your own. So what parts of the story, if people haven't heard, did you like find inspiration from? Just like the whole criminal aspect of it. When I you know found out about this class, and you know I found out that we can be really open, I was like, I fucking curse. I was like, fuck yeah, I can write about <laughs> you know whatever I want. So I you know the first thing that came up to my mind was just writing about this moment, and uh, I, from party favors, I really like how he um. He developed himself as a character, like just a lovable character that this wasn't him. And in many ways, I saw myself as that, too. Like that wasn't me when I was doing this. Right. You know, I was mm-hmm. working for a different reason. They were yeah. working for, for a different reason, too. So, mm-hmm. mm. yeah, I think that's just so cool to know. David, <laughs> we love you. Come back. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. So in conclusion, um, well, first a question before the last question. Um, did you ever get the steak? Oh yeah, did you? And the jacket and all of I got a, I got a jacket. You got a jacket. <laughs> nice. Steak, I I mean the steak I I grew away from that. Like, I didn't really <laughs> want it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Do you eat steak That's now? Or you like? I mean I've ice. always eaten steak, but I wanted like exotic steak. You know like oh, mm-hmm. like, like fancy like, yeah the steak. fancy one. Nice. <laughs> you haven't gotten that yet at all. No, I have, I think I've had. Okay. I've gotten the movie dates and all that. You get the oh. movie dates. Hey! <laughs> That's what I really wanted. <laughs> 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 oh, oh, so um, last question. What would you like your listeners to take away from this story? Uh, don't steal. But, uh, <laughs> uh, honestly, I want them to, to, to see, like, the growth in the character. I just tell them to, uh, to break away from all of, all of like, what everyone thinks of you i guess to to just be yourself i guess i mean it sounds cliche but you know yeah so self-trust that's cool (laughs) (laughs) self-trust that's cool karen i get a 2017 (laughs) (laughs) well with all of that being said thank you so much to ap for being on the show thank you for having me that concludes our third episode of the season the dream We are also excited to bring you new stories in the coming months, amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear about in creative nonfiction. You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and Facebook if you want to get some behind-the-scenes footage. We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience... We hope you loved these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and good, good night. night.